This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, the podcast that explores the modern era of Superman comics from a humanist perspective and examines real life through the lens of a Superman fan. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode 63, part 2. Truth and justice, my friends, and welcome back to the show. As you probably know, if you were listening last week, I did not have the time, opportunity, or in some cases mental wherewithal to record the comic book content last week. So I released the Fortress of Solitude segment for this episode last week in part one. And this week for part two, we're going to be talking about those comic books. Now, for those of you that listened to last week's episode and were able to contribute to uh, Tyler's PayPal fundraiser, I very much appreciate you for doing so, for helping Tyler um, meet his goal of being able to attend the award ceremony for his uh, short film. Um, I wish Tyler all the best of luck on that. I know that's coming up soon. I know he appreciates you chipping in and I appreciate you doing so too, just because it was a really nice and good thing to do. So yay. Good job. (laughs) Um, if you didn't, if you weren't able to chip in, you know, no worries. I know everybody's got their own stuff going on. And even if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week episode, even though that fundraiser is closed, um, I would appreciate the listen, just because I had some other things to talk about during that segment as well. But we are going to talk about just the comics this week. We're going to talk about Action Comics number 982, which is continuing the revenge story arc with Hank Henshaw's new uh, Superman Revenge Squad. We're going to talk about Trinity number 10 and Super Sons number 5, and those are all from June of 2017. So since we don't have any thoughts to get to this week, let's jump straight into the comics with action number 982. The specific cover date for this issue is June 28th, again, of 2017. Um, As almost always with action comics in this era, the writer is Dan Juergens. Um, A gentleman whose work I am not previously familiar with, but I enjoyed uh, in this issue, the penciler is Jose Luis. Um, probably no relation to Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, but who knows? Um, Jack Herbert, who was a penciler on the last two issues, uh, along with Ray McCarthy, did the inks. Hi-Fi did the colors, and Rob Lee did the letters. Patrick Zorcher and Hi-Fi did the main cover, and Michael Janine did the variant cover. Um, I hope I didn't pronounce his last name wrong. I've, in my head, I always just say Janin, but I know that's not right. Um, so if I am pronouncing it wrong, that's my bad. Uh, the main cover is of uh, Superman being just gang-jumped by this new Revenge Squad. Um, he's punching 
the Eradicator down to the floor. He's holding off Zod with some heat vision. He's punching uh, Metallo off to the right. Um, he's being jumped from the back by Mongol. Um, he's being blasted from the back by Henshaw. And then uh, Blank is kind of squatted down behind him and hitting him with either telekinetic or telepathic energy. It is a very indicative cover of the action you will see within. However, of these two covers, the one that I definitely would have picked up on the stands back in the day, if I were doing so, is the one by Janine. Um, it is of uh, just Superman in his rebirth costume, just flying up. <laughs> just, he's, in a, he's just in an upward flying motion. His cape is just one long big streak behind him. There's like pink fluffy clouds behind him and some seagulls. And I love uh, Janine's artwork very, very much. He will become, um, I don't want to say the regular penciler on the Warworld Saga because the pencils did uh, change regularly, but he was one of the pencilers on the Warworld Saga. He's one of the pencilers on uh, Superman and the Authority. He is one of my favorite modern-day Superman artists, especially for his work on Superman and the Authority, which I just am very excited to eventually get to, but it is quite a ways off, so we'll have to be patient. Um, yeah, and this, this cover will most likely, and I'm sure you guys have noticed by now, be the thumbnail for this episode. But as we know, um, Hank Henshaw has used the Oblivion Stone that was introduced during the 2015 Lois and Clark miniseries to uh, become the Cyborg Superman once again. I've kind of talked about Henshaw's motivations in that, in that they are just, they don't make sense, which I'm okay with because clearly Jurgens is leaning into the fact that Henshaw is just mentally broken beyond all return. And, you know, he, he's, he, even though his motivation prior to Flashpoint in the late 2000s was him just wanting to die, you know, here he's talked about he, Superman robbed him of his humanity, but then he gave up his humanity to get revenge on Superman for robbing him of his humanity. So clearly we have like a vicious cycle of bitterness and delusion and, and just mental instability and all this stuff rolled up. And he's gathered a new revenge squad with the characters that I mentioned on the cover. Um, in their, in Superman's effort to stop Henshaw and the Eradicator from freeing Zod from Bell Reef Prison, uh, Bell Reef's new Black Vault force field blinded Superman. So Superman is now blind, and he and the Superman, uh, the Super family, uh, his immediate family of Lois and John have taken refuge at the Arctic Fortress of Solitude. And we open with Zod just smashing a control panel somewhere. Uh, it's on the moon, the caption says. And uh, Zod's motivation for joining this revenge squad, he doesn't really care about Clark that much. You know, he doesn't, you know, he clearly considers Clark an enemy, but... That's not his main priority. His main priority is getting his army of Kryptonians that were loyal to him out of the Phantom Zone, which uh, uh, Henshaw has promised him the 
the opportunity to do. But it is taking longer than Zod would like. And he smashes a control panel and says, You promised me access to the Phantom Zone Henshaw. I demand it now. And we see that they have gathered in Batman's Moon Cave. And I'm assuming that that was probably introduced during the, the Tomasi and Gleason run on the Batman books, or at least in Justice League in the New 52 era. I don't know. I haven't read that much New 52 stuff to really know. Um, and you know, Honestly, speaking of the New 52 stuff, and I know this may sound heretical, I like the Batman family of books during New 52 a lot better than I like the Superman family of books. I, I really enjoy Tomasi and Gleason as a team. Um, I enjoy, uh, I really enjoy their, their work on Batman and Robin. I've really fallen in love with Nightwing as a character recently, um, especially because of Taylor's work on Nightwing's series over the last, I don't know, year and a half. Um, I've really also come to really, really like Batwoman. And so I've been reading all of their new 52 stuff. I am working my way through the Superman stuff. I've mentioned before, that's not a, a version of Superman that really resonates with me. But once you get to a certain point, it's pretty good. But I, I do like the Bat Family books in the new 52 better. But anyway, Henshaw has gathered his, his merry crew of murderers on the moon base and he is telling Zod to be patient they will get to the Phantom Zone projector soon and then everybody else is 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 gre is venting their grievances um everybody has their own motivation for joining the revenge squad and it's all it's not all just let's go kill superman mongol wants to turn earth into a new war world uh blank wants to just use the population of Earth as his murder canvas. Metallo wants Kryptonian technology to get an immortal artificial body. Um, the Eradicator does want to kill Superman. He wants to wipe out the entire, super, the immediate Superman family because, uh, you know, they have, they, they have polluted the pure Kryptonian bloodline, you know, blah, blah, blah. Gross. Um, yeah, everybody's got their own motivation, and that is why Henshaw is going to have them attack the Fortress of Solitude. So ironically, the place that Superman took his family to, to regroup, to try to cure his blindness, is exactly where the murder squad is planning to go. Um, and, you know, Henshaw's like, look, everything we need... To, to get revenge on Superman, to, to get our own plans, that's, in, that, that's inside the fortress. So that is where we're going to attack. And, uh, and let's see. So they're talking about... Uh, Henshaw pulls up this holographic display of the fortress, and, and Zod is very impressed because uh, it is the closest thing to home that still exists. But then he says in small letters, and it's in the hands of a simpleton, referring to Clark. And the Eradicator says that ironic that one who shuns Kryptonian purity would inhabit such a place. And again, Henshaw says, once we get the technology in there, we can do whatever we want. Annihilate Manhattan, kill two-thirds of the world's population, whatever we want. And he reiterates to Metallo that that's how he'll get a new, his new body, and... And to to Mongol that that's how 
they'll get the technology to convert Earth into a new war world. And that is, of course, where they will get the Phantom Zone projector, projector to free Zod's army from the Phantom Zone. So we go from there to, um, to the fortress and, um, and John and Lois are there and Clark is off in a science lab somewhere. He's being checked out by Kellex. They're trying to figure out what's going on with this blindness. Kellex can't figure it out. But meanwhile, John is looking around and, um, these statues, um, there, there's a statue of, of, um, Jor-El and Lara holding up one globe, and there was a statue of Mon Pa holding up another. And the statues of Mon Pa have been um, have been smashed, and um, and the caption says that that happened in 978. I don't remember the exact details on it. Um, I don't want to go double check. I'm guessing it's got something to do with the Eradicator. I don't remember. But um, the statues of, um, of Mom and Pa have been smashed. But then John says, hey, um, hey, maybe there's been an intruder in here, but me and Crypto want to go look around. And Joe, Lois is like, okay, just be safe. Mm, I, call, I call shenanigans on that one. I, I would... I would say that Lois would be a bit more protective of John, but maybe she's coming to terms with the fact that John can kind of hold his own a little better, um, and she's giving him a little leeway. So they look around, and they go into kind of sort of a big trophy room. We've got the rocket that brought Clark to Earth, and it is very much a Silver Age-style rocket, or maybe the rocket that that was depicted as having brought New 52 Superman to Earth during the New 52 era. It's a very, you know, bullet-shaped rocket with uh, with a glass dome on top and fins on the back. There's a double-seated car. It reminds me of a purple version of the cloud, the Bespin cloud cars from Empire Strikes Back. There's a cool suit of of armor. And not, I don't mean like the new 52 armor, but actually like a bulkier suit of ex, like an exo suit that we, that's just kind of, it's just kind of off to the side in one of the panels. It's really neat looking. It's got these big red shoulder pads. It's very mechanical looking. It kind of reminds me of the suit that Superman wore in the very, very early 90s, like before the Triangle era and the crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite. Um, where he had lost his powers due to this magical kryptonite that Mixus Pitlick had created, and then he wore this battle suit, only it had like a glass dome over his head, or a clearish dome. It looks like that without the dome. And then he finds um, the Kryptonian war suit, the big purple suit with the yellow emblem on his chest that looks like a two-headed eagle. And, it is, and John remarks that it is the suit that Clark wore when he came back from the dead, or shortly after he came back from the dead. And I will be talking about more that coming up in a few weeks, <laughs> in a few weeks, um, on over on the Patreon. So make sure you check that out. If you're not a patron already, I'll be, I'll be tossing out all the details for that 
towards the end of the show. Um, but uh, John and Crypto are continuing to walk through the fortress, and they hear like uh, a, a faint voice. And when it's originally written out, it almost looks like it's in Kryptonese. But then John hears it, and he's like, huh, what's that? But then it says Jonathan, and it says, listen to me. And it, it, it takes him deeper into the fortress. And I don't... When I first read this, I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's blank. He, he's talking telepathically to John, but I don't think that is the case. I think that is a revelation of something that'll be coming up in about, I don't know, like four or five issues of this comic. Um, it's a very controversial move for the books. Um, going forward, it's something that sticks through the end of this run. It's something that is a very important plot point of the Bendis run on the main Superman books. Um, but we will, we will double back around to that when we get to it. So like I said, Clark is being checked out by Telex. They got this whole thing with sunstone crystals being like waved in front of his eyes. I'm not sure what that's doing. But Kellex says, you know, the, the damage is permanent. There is, the, it's, it's deep, deep nerve damage. They, he can't, Kellex can't figure out the exact nature of the blindness, but he knows it's not something that can just be undone. And, uh, and Kellex says that it's not just his sight, his other vision powers are gone as well. So he doesn't have x-ray vision. He doesn't have telescopic vision. He can't, he doesn't have microscopic vision. The only eye-related power he has right now is his heat vision because it's not tied into his ability to see. But, um, you know, Lois is very concerned that this condition's permanent. Clark's like, look, it'll be okay. Um, as far as Superman, I have my other senses I can use. I don't necessarily need my eyes. I've got, you know, like, I've got the super hearing. I, I am super sensitive to, to fluctuations in the air around me. I'll, I'll, I'll be all right. But, you know, obviously, Lois is very concerned. Uh, we've got Zod, Henshaw, and the Eradicator all free. They don't know about the others that have been incorporated yet. Those three are about enough, and Clark already got a beatdown from them last issue because he was at a disadvantage. But Clark says, it's going to be all right. We'll figure something out. There's enough, you know, there's enough hardware here at the Fortress for me to fend them off. But as he's saying this, there's a huge boom, and the whole fortress shakes, and pieces of sunstone begin tinkling down around them. And Clark says he can hear machinery. It's barely audible, but it's highly advanced outside the fortress. Um, there's another huge boom, and Kellex says it's the sound of someone la uh, landing. Clark says it's more than one. Kellex says correct, and his... Uh, like his face turns into a view screen and we see the entire revenge squad shows up. Uh, and this is where they figure out that blank Mongol and Metallo have been added to this group as well. Speaking of Metallo, I should pause. If you haven't listened to the episodes leading up to this one, one, you should, it would be nice to add to my lessons, which is always great. But two, it would help you because it would give you a little more background than what I'm giving as I'm walking through this. But one little bit I will 
pause and touch on is this is a very different design from Metallo. Um, I think the go-to design for Metallo since the John Byrne reboot is Terminator minus the skin with a kryptonite heart, which is, uh, you know, derivative, I guess you could say. It, it is very derivative of the Terminator design. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. Um, it's very different than the amazing stuff that Johnson is doing with Metallo in Action Comics right now. Um, but here, the design is like green RoboCop without the helmet. Um, it's a cool design, uh, but it's very, very different than what we're used to seeing him. But if you haven't um, seen Metallo in this version, and if you've got the if you've got the app, I would highly recommend you check it out because it is really interesting. But we have the whole Revenge Squad. They're gathered outside the fortress. And, um, you know, they're about to start pounding their way in. Uh, uh, Clark tells them to, uh, well, Lois and John, they make a run for it. And uh, Lois says, you know, of course, we're not going to leave you. We're not going anywhere. John says, I can help. And Clark says, no, your job is to get your mom to safety. And then he tells Kellex to... uh, to go to Defense Protocol Omega and signal the Omnihedron. And we'll get into what the Omnihedron is in just a moment. Um, but he flies off. He, <laughs> there, the, the Revenge Squad is all gathered outside this big door. All right. It's a big square door. It's, it's like the blast doors from Star Wars where there's a big piece that comes down and a big piece that comes up and they meet in the middle. And where they meet in the middle, there's this Superman symbol. And they're talking about how they're they're spending a lot of time standing around talking about how they're going to blast their way in. But before they do this, a small portal opens above the Superman symbol in the door. A little canister uh, pops out and then it explodes. It's like a flashbang, I guess. Um, it looks like it does have some concussive you know, potential to it. But of course, these are all some really tough customers. So it doesn't do them much good. But as they're distracted, Metallo says, wait, is it just me or is the ground shaking? And then Superman bursts up from under the ice and takes the Revenge Squad off guard. And he's thinking, which we see in the text boxes, compromise them as I am. My chances of winning are almost zero. Best I can do is hit them hard and fast. Catch them by surprise and buy time, whatever it takes for Lois and John to escape. We go from there to National City, where Supergirl is headquartered. And um, it's been a while since I've talked about Supergirl on the show. Um, Like I said, her series was interesting, but not particularly entertaining to me personally, which is why I dropped it. I'd forgotten that National City, at least in the comics, is designed um, kind of like um, San Francisco with these steep hills. And then the rather narrow houses stacked, you know, very close to each other on the hills. Uh, we see Supergirl in her in her foster parents' house making herself a cup of coffee. She's talking about how she may not be able to enjoy the effects of caffeine, but that doesn't mean I don't enjoy the taste. I agree with her completely. And she's got on a flannel shirt, and she's got brown hair pulled back in a ponytail. But then uh, she hears a voice say, Kara. She opens the cabinet. And uh, it's Kellex communicating through the Omnihedron, which is a spherical crystal 
that Superman gave to Supergirl in issue number eight of her series, which I believe was a uh, rather loose um, Superman Reborn tie-in. Basically, it was just establishing that after the events of Reborn, uh, Supergirl has known this Superman the whole time. It wasn't a... That was the one thing I kind of wish they had touched on earlier in Rebirth before um, before Reborn was that this was a Superman that Supergirl did not know. But that tie-in established that they had known each other after this revised continuity, and he gave it... Omnihedron is basically a spherical crystalline communications device. And Kellex tells her we are under attack of the Fortress and your help is more than, and more is needed. And one neat little thing about Supergirl in this era is that the hologram that makes her hair look brown is tied into her glasses. So when she takes her glasses off, her hair turns blonde again. Neat trick. Um, I wonder if they address the fact, I wonder if like, if her glasses get knocked off while she's at school or whatever, people are like, hey, that girl's blonde now. But, um, uh, <laughs> sorry, going, going back to the fight outside the fortress, uh, Superman is using his other senses. He can feel the rush of air from um, Henshaw moving around. He grabs him by the leg. He slams him into Metallo and Mongol. I think this is Jose Luis's contribution. Uh, we switched artists. His faces remind me a lot of Mark Bagley. Um, I mostly know Bagley from New Warriors, but I know he's done a bajillion tons of other work too, a lot of which was on Spider-Man. But, you know, I was a big fan of New Warriors when it came out in the early 90s, and he was his art was one of my favorite parts of that series. So, um... Uh, the Eradicator comes flying up behind Superman, and he says, Kal-El! And, and Superman thinks, thanks for talking, makes it easier, turns around, punches him. Uh, Zod blasts Superman in the back with his heat vision. Uh, the cyborg grabs Superman, turns him around, holds him in kind of like a chokehold, so that Zod can continue blasting. And then Henshaw hurls Superman to the ground, at which point Mongol and all the others begin pounding on him. Um, um, Blank and Mongol are all talking about he's ours, save some for me, but Zod says, no, don't kill him yet, not until after he kneels before Zod, and Superman is thinking, I tried, I did my best, but I couldn't, and then he's being punched so hard and hit with kryptonite radiation that all he just, just like a couple of C's come out, um, Lois and John are seeing a holographic projection of this with inside the fortress. But then outside, something in a caped red blur uh, flashes beneath the Revenge Squad, grabs Superman, takes him. Zod says, no, he's ours. And then someone from off panel says, no, he's not. And then we see it is Lex in his Superman armor saying Superman is ours. The only way you get to him is over our dead bodies. And we see that it was Supergirl who grabbed Superman and pulled him to safety. And then standing behind Zod, not behind Zod, behind Luthor, is Kong Kennen. And then hovering in the air behind Luthor are Steel and Lana Lang as Super, uh, Superwoman. That is where the issue ends. Um, 
I am surprised that Lana still has her powers at this point. I think what they did in her series at this point, I think they tied her powers into the suit that she wears. I think she has artificially generated powers now. Because as I've talked about before, her powers were tied into the death of New 52 Superman. And since New 52 Superman's continuity has been merged with the pre-Flashpoint Superman, that death never actually happened because they were one and the same person. And so I think they've retroactively made her powers, like, you know, battle suit generated, which is fine. Um, I, tr- you know, I tried to like Lana's series. It honestly just bored me to death. Um, if you're a big, if you're a huge Lana Superwoman fan, I apologize. I know it's, you know, I did lose a few listeners after I dropped that show. But again, um, I don't really want this show to be work. <laughs> I want this show just to be fun. And if I'm doing stuff for the show that I don't really enjoy, then it becomes work. And the more work it is, the less fun it is. And so I dropped it. So, sorry. Um, but don't worry. There's going to be a lot of titles added to the show coming up in a few months. So you're going to get your you're going to get your fill of lots more content coming up. Not soon, but soon-ish. But that is Action Comics number 982. Uh, pretty good. Um, like I've said in regards to Jurgens's writing, he's doing long-form writing for these arcs. He is spreading out what could probably be done in two or three issues into six, which is fine, because I know that is kind of what the industry demands. Um, I think that's why a lot of people my age enjoy the um, the Tomasi Gleason run, is because they, they don't do six-issue arcs. They do two, maybe three-issue arcs, except for that first one with the Eradicator, uh, which can feel... You know, somewhat more refreshing, um, but it's fine. This is not a poorly written story at all. I enjoy Clark's internal monologue. Um, I really like, you know, the whole. You know, I'm, I'm having to rely on my other senses to compensate for the loss of, loss of my vision. That's always a fun trope that when people play with it. And you know, I think it's neat that Lex is kind of leading the charge to rescue Superman. Um, I, I think it's fascinating how when we get to Lex reverting to type and then some, what it takes for that to happen. It takes an event of ultra cosmic proportions to make Lex revert, revert back to villainy, but we will get to that eventually. And I will be talking about it with another podcaster coming up relatively soon, probably in the next month or so, which I'm really looking forward to. But I'm going to pause now for a break. Uh, Before I do so, I just want to remind you guys that now that the show is ad-free, I do uh, rely on your support now more than ever. Um, So if you uh, would consider subscribing to my Patreon, that would help the show out considerably, and I will give more details for that again at the end of the show. But um, I 
like I said, I'm going to take a quick, quick break and I'll be right back to talk about Trinity number 10. And we are back. And for the second half of the episode, I'll be talking about Trinity number 10 and Super Sons number 5. Both of these issues have a cover date of June 21st of 2017. And I suspect that my coverage of these two episodes won't take as long as my discussion of Action 982. They're both very action fight heavy issues which can make for a fun read but doesn't always lend itself to a intensely deep conversation um but i will certainly give it my best and if my prediction is inaccurate if trinity number 10 takes at least 30 minutes then i will recalibrate and go from there but that is the plan for now so let's get started again trinity number 10 let me get you the credits on this one. Uh, let's see here. Uh, this is story, art, colors, and cover by the amazing Francis Manipole. Letters by Steve Wands. And the variant cover is by Bill Sienkiewicz. So the main cover is of... Um, I think what's supposed to be at the bottom of the cover is supposed to be the top of the JLA satellite, but it, it's got Batman kind of hovering over that. So it may be Batman kind of hunkered over some kind of computer terminal. I don't know, but I think it's supposed to be the top of the satellite. And then to his left and right, respectively, are the Flash and Cyborg. Directly behind him is an image of Wonder Woman. To her left and right are Aquaman and Jessica Cruz. Above Aquaman's shoulder is Simon Boz. And then directly above Wonder Woman is Superman. It's a pretty cool cover. Um, you know, it's kind of generic, but it's still really well done. And I've talked extensively about how much I really enjoy Francis Manipal's artwork. So it's it's delightful. The variant, um, again, and I mean no disrespect to Sienkiewicz. He's an amazing artist who's been doing comic books as long as, as, long as I've almost been alive. Um, but I don't love this cover. Um, it has this alien robotic character who's somewhat of an antagonist of the issue, um, kind of front and center with Kirby Crackle kind of coming out of its body. And then it looks like it's grabbing Superman by the head or by the hair with his right hand and kind of throwing him down and back and then tossing Wonder Woman toward the reader. Um, it's just a little too sketchy for me to really enjoy it and the colors are colors are interesting like for some reason wonder woman is done almost in like sepia tones and then superman is done in in kind of very muted blue the most interesting part of it is the robot android alien guy um who just it just has a neat design that i'll get into more when we get into the issue but so far in this arc Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman are investigating an incident at the Watchtower. Not, uh, yeah, I think it's still. I think the satellite is still called the Watchtower in this era. Um, it has been overtaken by some kind of alien virus that is uh, infecting the, the satellite itself with kind of a uh, organic technology, including like these this 
uh, like an incubation chamber, and then coming out of the incubation chamber are the members of the Justice League who have been transformed in such a way that they have these heads that kind of sort of look like Predator with four eyes. Um, they're, they're kind of a purplish brown. They have these big tusks. They have this big toothy mouth. And then these four kind of spider-like eyes. And then kind of a ridge that goes down the back of the head to the middle of the back. Other than that, they are exactly like they were. And it's making them aggressive. It's making the Justice League members attack their friends. Um, The only one not infected uh, other than the Trinity is Cyborg, who has been dismantled. His arms and legs have been ripped off. And as we go into the issue... Batman is trying to get Cyborg to the lower levels of the satellite where he can hook him up to equipment to keep him from dying. And as we open the book, uh, an infected Aquaman is smashing his way out of, I don't know if it's it's his personal water tank or if it's his, his pod in this kind of incubation thingy that they're all in, but he comes smashing out and, um, I really, I really shouldn't say all the members of the Justice League because I, first I pointed out that Cyborg is not infected. Also, Flash is not infected because he's been able to keep his body at a constant rate of vibration to keep the, the virus from taking hold. So I guess it would be most accurate to just say the Jessica, Simon, and Aquaman have been transformed by this alien virus. And um, so Aquaman comes smashing out uh Flash is trying to fight Aquaman off while uh, Batman gets Cyborg to safety. Batman throws this kind of bolo thing from his uh, from his utility belt that wraps up Aquaman. Uh, Aquaman manages to grab Flash by the neck and slam him up against the wall. And after Batman gets Aquaman restrained, Flash points out that Aquaman is holding back somehow that there's enough of Aquaman in there inside this infection that he's able to resist whatever it is it's doing because Flash points out that Aquaman is strong enough to just have broken Flash's neck at this point. But Aquaman breaks free and he's growling and he's hissing and he, and uh, he goes to attack his teammates. Batman hits him with a taser Batman jumps on his back and manages to pry the mouth of this alien visage open. And we see Aquaman's face inside the mouth. So it's not transforming them, we we were learning. It's creating like an exoskeleton around them. And and the head is kind of like an organic helmet, which is a really neat concept. What it reminds me of is in the early 2000s, I got really into Star Wars novels and the ones that I liked, I don't remember what the the era of it's called, but it's where an army is invading from outside the galaxy called the Yuuzhan Vong and they use organic technology and they have like this living armor, not in like a, like a venom way, but it's made up of different pieces of living creatures and their weapons are alive and it's, it's a, and their, their ships are like space whales or something. And that's kind of what this reminds me of, that this helmet is formed around Aquaman that is a living head, which is pretty cool. Now, while this is going on, Superman and Wonder Woman are are debating with this alien android that has arrived 
on the watchtower. And it's telling them how this virus infected his homeworld. And it was a it was a world full of beings who were completely devoted to science. They didn't know anything about warfare. So when this virus arrived and began transforming their people, the scientists created these android beings to stop the virus. And this android had managed to round up all the infected people and put them on its ship, and it was taking them somewhere. Um, let me see. Uh, you know, peaceful explorers, knowledge of the cosmos, um, and they. Oh, he was going to going to detonate the ship once it got far enough out into space. But there was an asteroid, and an asteroid knocked the ship off course, and it attached itself to the satellite, which inadvertently released the virus inside the satellite. So the alien's like, look, I know these are your friends, uh, but your satellite is off course now. Your satellite's going to crash. It's going to land on Earth. It's going to release the virus. It's going to transform everyone in your society. And um, I have to blow up the satellite and kill your friends to stop this virus from spreading. Now, at the end of the last issue, when the robot appeared, it felt like a familiar trope. You know, you, you've got the virus, and the virus is bad, but the, you know, the cure can be just as bad because you've got this ruthless um, exterminator that's going to come in, and we've got to stop him from exterminating our friends, and we'll find a solution in the meantime. And yeah, that's that's true, but the way the robot, the android, does the dialogue, it almost has kind of a xenophobia quality to it. That these these interrupted our way of they threatened our way of life, and I guess that could be interpreted a couple different ways. So maybe I'm reading into it. I have not read past this, so I don't know. But that's my theory. My theory is that, especially what we see as we get a little further into, I'm I'm theorizing at this point that the the virus and what it's doing to the Justice League isn't the big bad of this situation. I'm guessing it's actually the android, and what it's telling Superman and Wonder Woman is not the 100% truth. So... um Batman and Flash are continuing to fight Aquaman, and while they're fighting Aquaman, uh, Aquaman says, help them, and we don't know what that's about, and Flash and Batman don't know what it's about, but um, Flash is like, look, we've got to do something, the shock didn't work, he suggests vibrating the, the virus helmet off of Aquaman, Batman says, don't even think about it, we don't know what it will do to him. Uh, Batman punches Aquaman, too many mans, Aquaman punches Batman, sends him flying back into where Batman has uh, Cyborg secured against a pillar, and Cyborg is beeping, and Batman says that Cyborg's life signs are slowing down, and his technology won't sustain his heart that much longer. And so Flash is like, look, you've got to do what you've got to do. Uh, and Flash goes into uh, a, a neat little speech here that I think ties in nicely 
to a theme that DC had going on during this era, because this is still technically part of Rebirth. And he says that, you know, we're an unlikely pair of Batman. You all dark and broody, me all bright and upbeat. We've taken different paths, but ended up on the same road, a road littered with obstacles. And the only thing that's always gotten us through is family. Now, that works on a couple different levels. Um, obviously, the Flash TV show was a spinoff of the Arrow TV show. That version of Arrow is very much uh, themed after Batman. And the way that Arrow and Flash always got teamed up on that show reminded me of Batman and Superman. That you know, Arrow was the dark, broody one. Flash was the the more upbeat, the more optimistic one. And I think they're doing kind of a nod to that here, that Flash, who, yes, is upbeat and optimistic, is being paired with the character that Arrow was based on in the TV. So you've got that. And also, during Rebirth, um, because a lot of what's going on in Batman's early titles or early issues of his Rebirth run and what was going on in early issues of Flash's Rebirth run was this build-up to uh, what will eventually get revealed as Doomsday Crisis, with the, the the comedian's button being lodged in the wall of the Batcave. And that works on a few different levels. One, you've got DC's arguably most popular character, and so, of course, you want to put him front and center of this big thing you've got building up. Two, Batman is the detective, so if there's a mystery, you want Batman involved. And three, it... The way they're they're doing this build-up to Doomsday Clock comes across as a capital C crisis. And, of course, flashes are always front and center in a crisis. So that makes a lot of sense. And I, I like that they're kind of acknowledging that Batman and Flash have been working together a lot in this era. Plus, ever since Jeff Johns' rebirth... Uh, no. <laughs> so Jeff Johns' Flash rebirth miniseries that uh, retconned Barry's history after he was brought back to life in Final Crisis, uh, a lot of Flash's motivation is based on his mother's death, which, of course, is very much tied into uh, thematically to Batman's motivation. So Flash tells uh, Batman to go be with his son, uh, to go save Cyborg. He creates a, a little mini tornado with his arm that sends Batman and Cyborg flying in one direction. And then he vibrates himself and Aquaman through the wall of the Watchtower out into space. And while I... What's interesting about one of these panels is usually Flash vibrates, you know, passes through walls by vibrating himself fast enough to slip through the molecules. But we see Batman's arm sticking out through the wall, handing something to the Flash. So I guess... It's implied here that Flash is also vibrating the molecules of the wall fast enough to pass himself and Aquaman through, which is interesting. Um, Batman almost loses an arm here, but he hands something out through the wall to Flash. Flash takes it, whatever it is, it's small, it's the size of a cell phone, uh, and Flash is looking at it and is smiling. You know, obviously, this doesn't kill the Flash, it doesn't kill Aquaman, because their books don't end at this time. But it will be interesting for me to see how this works out. Sorry, sip of the old coffee there. I like my coffee black, no sugar. 
And so Batman is is talking out loud to Cyborg, even though Cyborg can't hear him. Um, and he's saying how the ship is descending. They don't have much time. They've got to, in addition to getting Cyborg fixed up, they've got to stop the uh, stop the satellite from falling. And then there's a big creak, and we see like a the a pane of glass crack a little bit. And Batman is saying that it's Clark. He must be attempting to redirect the watchtower himself. At this speed, he'll snap the ship in half. No time to be pretty about it. These controlled explosives should get us through this floor. So Batman is in even more of a hurry to save Cyborg now so that he can save the satellite because he thinks Superman is not up to the job on his own. So he plants a little explosive, but before it goes off, this big thing that at first looks like a clawed hand reaches up through the floor, grabs Batman and Cyborg, pulls them down through the floor, and we get this really cool, what I assume was a double-page splash, of this incubation uh, pod thing that has all these little egg-like, I don't know, I guess those are the pods, and this is an incubation chamber, right? And we can see all these little incubation pods in it, and it's grown these almost plant-like tentacles to defend itself. And Batman saying tentacles. I hate tentacles. And we actually see where one of the clawed tentacles is like puncturing Batman's side, which is pretty intense. We get from there a great shot of the outside of the watchtower of it starting to enter Earth's atmosphere. And we see this great big massive um, satellite. We get a little bitty tiny Superman trying to push it back. And Superman's thinking to himself, and it begins with oomph. So we actually get Superman thinking, Mmph. and he thinks, come on, Clark, you can do this. Nudge the Justice League watchtower just enough to use its own momentum to swing it past Earth. So Superman isn't doing what Batman thinks he is. He's not pushing directly against the watchtower. He's using its momentum to shift its direction. And uh, Superman is thinking to himself, think about John and Lois and the billions of lives down below. But as he's doing this, uh, the infected Simon Baz and Jessica Cruz come smashing out of the walls of the watchtower just above his arms. And they begin, uh, we see some, some rubble come with them and we get a pullback shot. And I think it's supposed to be the rubble that we're seeing fall to the earth ahead of the satellite, but the word bubble seems to be coming from the rubble. So I'm thinking, what it's doing, it's a very pulled back shot. It's pulled back so far that we can't see individual characters, but it's kind of focusing on this rubble that's following, and the word bubble is coming from the general direction of the rubble, and it's saying, help, it, first it says, help us, and then help them. And I think it's talking about the the alien virus. I think it's talking about all these other people that have been infected by this virus that are perhaps not a threat in and of themselves, but are being threatened with death by this android. Speaking of the android, we go from there to where Wonder Woman is leading the android through the watchtower. She's wrapped it up with her lasso, but it is starting to work its way free um, Wonder Woman is just trying to delay it. She's saying that Superman can slow the tower's momentum. Um, 
uh, and the android is saying, no, we must destroy both our vessels is the only way to stop them. And he says, you don't understand. And Wonder Woman says, I do understand. All life is precious. And she comes to these big set of double doors and there's a blood-like fluid leaking out from beneath the doors. And Wonder Woman stands up and she puts her hand between the seams of the doors and says, we all have a purpose. And she begins pushing the doors apart and says, even the most dangerous creatures. And she opens this chamber and she finds all these empty incubation pod husks. And one one woman says, these beings are more than just a virus, aren't they? Their cells are like pupil skins. They were evolving. And the android says, what they are does not matter. They were destroying our way of life. Hundreds turn into thousands. They reproduce so quickly. All we could do is contain them. We use the largest of them to draw. We use the largest of them to draw them to this vessels. And Wonder Woman says they were drawn to a queen. And then she shouts in pain. She says their mother and then turns around. And now Wonder Woman has been infected. She has one of the bio helmets on her head only where the helmet's mouth is open, we only see Wonder Woman's mouth beneath it. And she calls, she turns around and hisses and calls the android a monster. So I believe what it's implying is that Wonder Woman has now been infected by the Queen, uh, which to me indicates that next issue of this series, we're going to find out more about what's going on. Um, like I said, very fun issue just not a lot to talk about super in depth about it that took me about 20 minutes um but yeah i love manipul's artwork in this i think he's a really good storyteller um i like his art a little better than his storytelling but his storytelling is still very good he is probably one of my top 10 comic book creators of the modern era so with that let's move on and talk about um, Super Sons number five. And this issue, let me get to the credits. I have a feeling they're all the way in the back. Yep. Boo. Okay. Um, we got to scroll back up past the Aquaman, the sexy Aquaman preview. Where are the Where are the credits? They are hidden in this thing. Okay, so uh, Tomasi is doing the writing in this one. We have a guest artist, Allison Borges, B-O-R-G-E-S, so Borges, uh, maybe. Hi-Fi is the colors, Rob Lee is the letterer, Jorge Jimenez and Alejandro Sanchez, one of my favorite artistic teams, did the main cover, and Dustin Nguyen did the variant. So the main cover is of um, what... <laughs> What I thought at first was Robin and Superboy fighting the giant robot dinosaur in the Batcave. Um, Superboy is shoving Batman's giant penny down the T-Rex's throat while Robin kind of rides on its neck. But I think, judging by the content of the story, that this is supposed to be Robin piloting the robot T-Rex and using it to fight Superboy. 
Uh, it's a cool cover. Again, I love uh, Jorge Jimenez. Uh, it's a great shot from up above. We're looking down on the Batcave. Um, in the background, we see a giant uh, Riddler question mark and a giant pair of die. A giant die, I should say. Uh, and the uh, the T-Rex looks a lot more robotic than what we usually see it. Like We kind of see where it's the hinges of its arms are mechanical, and there's a mechanical gap between part of its midsection and part of its jaw looks very mechanical. And this is a really cool cover. Um, the Nguyen um, cover, I don't love. I, I don't love the colors on this one. Um, it's very colored pencil looking, which can work. But in this case, I, I just don't love it. And of course, it's going up against Jorge Jimenez. That's a very unfair fight, in my opinion. So clearly, I would go with the Jimenez cover if I were getting this one off the shelves. And so we open with a splash page of Damien in the Batcave with his mask and cape off, but the rest of his uniform on. His one foot propped up on the back computer, saying, telling Alfred that his greatest enemy is boredom. And he wants to know when he can go back on, on control, out on patrol. He should be rewarded because he and John saved a family from uh, Kid Amazo and the Amazo virus in the last story arc. And at which point Alfred reminds Damien that he is grounded because he and uh, John went off without permission. And I covered that extensively in uh, in one of the, in some of the last few issues of the show. Again, if you're new to the show, welcome. But I would start a little further back so that you can get the full story of what's going on. But I will do my best to recap as we go through it. Um, and so John is talking about how John's mother and father are the real problem. Uh, the only reason Batman's punishing Damien is to save face because Batman feels embarrassed that Damien worked with John, which isn't true. Uh, Damien says, that's why I like working with the Titans, no parental supervision. And John's not even old enough to be a teen Titan. He's so lame. I have no idea why Batman wastes his time partnering up with Superman. And Alfred says, your father considers many things a waste of time, such as sleeping. But I know that one thing he never doubts is his friendship with Superman. And Damien goes, super losers, more like it. Um, and Damien says, I don't know, I don't have time for Superman or his whiny. And we pause there as Damien hears a rustle inside of a... Not a control panel, but like a access panel, like a, a wiring access panel. But before that, earlier in the day, we cut to the Kent farm where Lois is not happy with John. John is also grounded for running off without permission. And he's being made to do extra chores, but John's cheating by using his powers. We see him, he's, he's taken a whole massive hay bale and he's jumping it across the the farm to put it where it goes and Lois is giving him the business about it. And he's like, but mom, it makes chores easier. He's like, well, you should have thought of that before you went off on your little adventure last week. Finish moving the bales like a normal person, please. Now, <laughs> as much as I love this series and as much as I love this era and I love the Kents living on their farm up in Hamilton County 
And as much as I love Superman and Lois, and I love them living on the old Kent farm in Smallville, I do not know what they farm on their farms. We never see them work a crop. They don't have any livestock. I don't know. And maybe this is just because I grew up in farm country. And I know what farming looks like. And yes, they have a really nice farmhouse. And they have acres of farmland. And we see them planting stuff. But we never see their crops growing. And we never we never see their crops getting harvested. Um, it, one might assume that because they have hay bales. That they're basically just raising... They're, you know, they're raising wheat and hay is the kind of the, the byproduct of, of growing wheat crops. But my grandma had a cattle farm and she had, and she had massive hay bales there to feed the cows. So I don't know. <laughs> but I always think it's really funny. I'm like, what, what is the kids farm? But anyway, I know that I know like mom and pa, I know pa grew like corn and, and wheat, I think. Um, but anyway, we never see what, what Lois and, and, and Clark specifically farming are out there. Um, so Clark comes running out of the house, pulling open his shirt to reveal the Superman uniform for some reason. Um, I think because he heard Lois shouting, I think we're supposed to like, think maybe there was Clark thought there was a problem and he's come running. Um, but Clark's like, look, man, did you lose your, did you use your powers? And John's like, yeah, but mom already talked to me about it. And Clark's like, yeah, that's not the problem right now. Um, he knows that John is kind of acting out because John is not happy that they're moving back to Metropolis, um, which they're getting into in Action Comics, which I've been, again, talking about, so you might want to. Rewind a few episodes if you're new to the show. And again, in this version, in this kind of soft rebooted continuity, the um, like John wasn't a secret, and Lois and Clark never went into hiding to protect their identity. Superman took some time off from being Superman to raise help raise John out in the country and has just now started being Superman again. So now that he feels comfortable being Superman again in public, it's time to move back to Metropolis. And John's not happy about this because he spent most of his life in Smallville. He's made friends there. Um, and, you know, he doesn't like that Lois and Clark are constantly telling him to not use his power so he doesn't give his secret away. So John gets mad and John jumps off. And there's a really neat panel of John mid-jump. And the panel behind him is just of the sky, but the panel is shattering. And so it's this really good metaphor, in my opinion, of John feeling like his world is falling apart. So Lois is very upset. She runs in, gives Clark a hug, and he's like, don't worry, I'll keep an eye on him. So we zoom out later on that evening. John is in Metropolis. And John is thinking that sometimes being Superboy isn't all it's cracked up to be. And so he is jumping through these different parts of the city. Um, and he's thinking to himself, Damien dragged me to fight Kid Amazo and he probably got off fine while I got grounded. Robin sucks too. And there's a really neat close-up panel of John that reminds me a lot of the art in Akira. Um, the, the, the actual manga, not the anime. Um, so I have a feeling we're mis... Uh, Ms. Borges's um, art style 
is inspired from. Um, and then we see what I think has happened is that John has snuck in through an access panel, access tunnel that leads to the cave, and he's come out through this panel, and that was what John heard, that was what Damien heard a few pages ago. So John kind of pops out of this panel, surprises Damien, Damien attacks John, uh, and they fight. And they fight for several pages. Uh, there are there are robin orangs being thrown. Um, John says, quit attacking me, it's me. Damien pokes him in the face and says, you could be an escaped amazo doppelganger that we missed. And they argue back and forth a lot. Um, uh, and they're talking about uh, how... John, at first, they're getting along all right, but then Damien keeps getting the digs in, and John's trying to like talk to someone he thinks will understand. He's like, you know, my parents are you know really mad at me. Did your dad get mad? And Damien's like, Batman's always mad. That's how he should be. And um, and Damien says, well, you know, I'm kind of upset that we're having to move to Metropolis, and I wanted to talk to someone about it. And so Damien gets on, gets gives him a hard time about being all feelingsy. It's like, oh, you've got all these powers, and you have these great parents, and boo-hoo, I've got to move to the big city. And uh, finally, Damon just lashes out and says, we are not friends. And so they begin fighting again. Damien shoves John, and John tries to kick Damien, and Damien jumps out of the way and throws a bunch of batarangs. And they fight, and they fight, and they fight. And there's a big... John picks up some kind of like control panel thing and throws it at Damien and there's punches and there's kicks. And this is how you know that John's not at his full powers yet because he punches Damien and doesn't kill him. And they're fighting in front of the big dinosaur. And Alfred's voice from off panel says, Master Damien, what's going on down there? And they both go, uh-oh. And uh, John says, I'm not supposed to be here. What do I do? And Damien says, hi, dummy. There's a hatch. I study it there sometime, and he points to the underside of the T-Rex. And they kind of look at each other like, ugh, for a minute. And uh, Alfred walks in, and he's carrying two plates of food. And he says, hmm, I cannot believe my life has come to a place where I have to say this. Please step out of the dinosaur's buttocks. And we get a pullback shot from Alfred's point of view from <laughs> above the T-Rex, and you see two capes hanging out of where its butt would be, which is pretty funny. And so, uh, a few minutes later, Damien and John are sitting around, and they're eating food, and uh, Alfred asks, you know, why are you fighting? And Damien says, well, he came to complain that his life is so cruel. So they start to argue again, and Alfred, Alfred settles them down and says, I've watched your fathers go from wary suspicion of each other to trusted confidants. But it was not easy. It took time and patience and far too many arguments. And we get a panel of Batman in his new 52-era suit with the armor-like plating. And then Superman in his new 52-era suit. But again, this is after the merged, soft-rebooted continuity where this is the Superman that we've had the whole time. There were never were two Supermen. And so this is the Superman that we know who looks like he's in his early 30s wearing the new 52 armor 
Um, you know, and of course the new 52 Superman was more like in his like mid twenties. Right. And so it's, it's interesting to see the more mature Superman wearing the younger Superman's outfit, which is pretty neat. And thus implying that when in this soft rebooted continuity, when Batman and Superman first met, they were still wearing their new 52 suits. So I think there's an implication that in this version of continuity, both of these characters started their careers in these outfits, which is pretty neat. I don't know if I, necess- I don't know if that necessarily tracks with what we've seen artistically over in those kind of flashback episodes, uh, flashback issues of action comics that build up to the revenge arc. But there is kind of a logic to it. And so Alfred goes on to say, As you grow older, it's easy to become rigid in your ways, never willing or able to see the world from others' perspectives, never trusting that yours is not the only way. Shutting yourself off from new and old friends alike is never a healthy idea. And we see that Robin and Superboy both pause with food in their mouths to kind of give Alfred their full attention. And then we have this panel of... Batman and Superman fighting back to back. And now with Batman in his rebirth era suit with the yellow highlight around the black bat symbol and the yellow and black um, utility belt and Superman in his reborn suit, which I, I don't know. I, I didn't really think about it until I was rereading this early this morning, but the, I'm sorry, the reborn suit, the one with the boots and the full red belt, really is just like you take the the new 52 suit and you turn it from armor into cloth. And so it, it really is just a perfect, if, if what you want is the meat in the middle between uh, classic Superman and new 52 Superman, it really is just the perfect midway point between the two and it's really smart and we see that after they fought back to back they're shaking hands and smiling at each other like friends um and alfred goes on to say especially in your father's lines of work there's nothing better in this world than a friend who's gone through what you've gone through they can help you find a path where you thought there wasn't one and uh you know john keeps you know talking about i really don't want to move from hamilton city's stink like smell bad and uh, Damien says, you can't be afraid of change, Kent. It's going to happen no matter what. And then from off-panel, Superman says, that's something we can all attest to. And we see that he and Batman have been watching this exchange between the boys and Alfred. <laughs> and uh, Robin uh, points at Batman and says, diabolical. How would you like it if I followed you everywhere and listened on your conversations? And Batman just says, you do. And Superman says, you're my son, John. I was worried about you after our argument and when I saw where you headed. And um, Batman says, it's lucky for you boys that we got here before you blew up the Batcave. And so they go on to talk about, you know, (laughs) Robin says, well, I could have taken him. And I'm sure you would have been interested to see who would have won in a fight. And then we get the whole who would win in a fight, Superman and Batman. And Batman says, I would. And Superman says, like, are you sure? Because I'm a whole lot more powerful than you. And Batman's like, yes, I'm sure. Um, There's a really good counter-argument to that in Superman Up in the Sky, which I 
should be talking about with um, Anthony Desiato of Digging for Kryptonite very soon. Um, so stay tuned for that. It'll be a while before I get to talk about it here on this show, but I'm glad I did get to talk about it at some point in the very near future. Um, and, you know, John, or Clark says, you know, look, John, you know, I know how you feel, but this is the way it has to be. This is what's best for all of us. And John says, yeah, I get it, but I don't have to like it. And Clark says, yeah, you're right. It doesn't mean you have to like it, but your mother and I are going to accept that we can't hide your powers anymore. You need to be a part of the world, not protected from it. Maybe it's time to begin your own adventures with someone closer in age who knows what you're going through. And John says, you know, thanks for trusting me. And Superman says, but you're not going out alone. The two of you always have to stick together. And, you know, then he walks off and says, well, now I got to tell Lois. And Batman says, good luck with that. And um, so John and Damien, they go walking off by themselves. And John says, what do you want to do? And Robin says, remember what I said before when we took down Kid Amazo? Ask for forgiveness, not permission. And John says, as long as I'm home on time. And we see them outside in the city with Robin swinging on a bat line and John jumping from rooftop to rooftop in front of a giant crescent moon. And it's a very cool uh, final splash page. And this is this issue is a really good transition. Um, it works really well as a transition from the first arc, uh, which is building on the the previous issues of Superman where John and Damien first met and they were forced to work together. And then the the first four issues of this arc where they continued to team up, but they were very reluctant to do so. And now where they've kind of come into this idea of being partners, which is really cool. And there's a neat touch in this. I haven't been paying that much attention to the back of John's cape, but his cape has the yellow S on it, like Superman's, only the way it's done, it's made, you know, when you look at the Superman S, the yellow negative space stands out a lot, and of course in, in modern continuity, the S, it's not the S that's the Kryptonian symbols, it's the negative space of the, that are the actual Kryptonian symbols, and the S is the negative space between them, so we just get the yellow symbols in a pentagonal shape, but with no outline. And that works really neat. Uh, I really like that. It's like it's forming the S literally just out of negative space in the cave. I'll have to pay more attention to what the back of John's cape looks like in the future. I don't know if that's just what uh, an artistic license that, that Alison Borges was doing in this, um, or if it's something that's been doing along, going on all along, and I just never noticed. But um, this is a fun issue. Like I said, uh, the fighty fights don't give me as much to talk about. So I managed to get two issues in in under 45 minutes. Uh, but both issues are very fun and work as part of a, a larger whole. Um, so that does it for our comic book coverage for this week. I'm going to take one more quick break and then I will be right back to wrap everything up. And that does it for part two of episode 63 of Truth, Justice, and Hope, a Superman podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed finding time in my my changing schedule to get it recorded and reading these issues. Um, if you do enjoy the show, uh, as I mentioned right before the, the mid-show break, um, your support of the show matters now more than ever before. I am... Uh, going ad-free for the show, partly out of necessity. I believe the show is almost to the part where if I were to decide to incorporate ads, I could, but I'm not going to. Um, one, I, I'm not a fan of how Spotify's um, operating policies. I don't like that they, they shortchange smaller creators like myself and thousands of others to support tool bags like Joe Rogan. So um, I do not want their ad revenue, and I think it kind of cheapens the spirit of the show when I am taking on ads in that manner. So I'm going to maintain the support of the show through listener support only. Um, so if you do like what I'm doing here on the show... If you'd like me to be able to keep doing it, if you'd like me to be able to expand what I'm doing, incorporate um, better technology, incorporate more time to be able to sit down and record these, then um, then I would encourage you and ask that you uh, check out patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope. I have a couple of different support tiers over there. Um Whatever you pledge gets you access to the weekly exclusive coverage of my favorite classic post-crisis Superman stories. I'm currently almost to the middle of Reign of the Superman, and I'll be putting out um, the next episode of that should be coming out the day after this episode launches. So this one should be coming out Thursday. The new Patreon should be coming out Friday. And that will probably be the schedule going forward. I'm trying to make Friday Patreon day. If you donate at a higher level, you get to help decide what my quarterly special episodes of the Patreon are going to be about. And um, like I mentioned previously, um, once I finish Reign of the Supermen, I'm going to probably put the 90s on hold for a little while. I'm going to switch over to the late 2000s, the post-Infinite Crisis era, and I'm going to kick that off with a lengthy discussion of Superman Returns which is by now my my hands-down favorite Superman movie. So I hope you guys will join the community and join me for that. Otherwise, you can help support the show is to um, spread the word about the show on social media and to leave me a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. And again, I would appreciate that very, very much. Next week on the show, here on the main podcast, I will be talking about Superman number 26, which is going to kick off a, it's going to be a fill-in issue. Uh, we have a fill-in writer and fill-in penciler on this one. I do not remember what this one's about, so this will be a fun surprise. We're going to talk about uh, new Superman number 13, which will continue the arc of Kong Kenan and the Justice League of China fighting a giant turtle kaiju wizard 
And also, Kong Kenan having to deal with his predecessor, Superman Zero, who was trying to take over China when we, la- when we left the issue off last time. And I'm also going to do an overview of the second uh, Dark Knight's Metal prelude, Dark Days the Casting. I don't believe Superman is in this one at all, but I w- at least want to touch on what happens in that issue to get us fully prepared for Dark Knight's Metal. And again, that issue will be out next week. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. But until then, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open mind and an open heart. Love ya.